Hello, my friends. Big show today. I want to take you through a bunch of very interesting opinion polls. We'll look at everything from Trudeau's popularity to Elon Musk's popularity and what Americans think of the war in the Middle East. I'll also have for you a special interview with a woman who lived through China's cultural revolution, and she'll talk about the madness on North American campuses. That's ahead. But first, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's the video version of this podcast. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. And that might not sound like a lot of dough to you, but it is so important to us because it really adds up. That's how we pay our bills. Okay, thanks very much. Here's today's podcast. Tonight, two opinion polls. One will give you hope, and the other will scare you. It's October 24th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious thug. I saw a few opinion polls in the past few days that I'd like to share with you. Let me tell you the encouraging one first. It's from Nick Nanos, who's pretty sympathetic to Trudeau. I'm not saying he's inaccurate. I'm just saying he sort of leans that way. I'll let him do the talking. Here's his headline. Trudeau at eight-year low in preferred prime minister tracking, while Polyev at eight-year high for a conservative leader. Inflation pulling ahead of all other issues, says Nanos. Trudeau at eight-year low on preferred PM tracking. Polyev at eight-year high for a conservative party leader in tracking. So Nanos does the poll on a really regular basis to get those, you know, week-by-week movements or month-by-month. Here's a map, a province-by-province model of what Nanos's numbers would look like if it was an election today. So this fella say, okay, what would that look like in Alberta, NBC, et cetera? It would be 212 seats for the conservatives. Huge majority, just 67 for the Liberals and 33 for the NDP. And the model suggests seven seats for the Greens, which is makes me very sad for Victoria and Vancouver Island. Sort of terrifying, actually. 19 seats for the Bloc and almost one for the People's Party in Portage Lisgar. But the difference between almost one and one is enormous. Look at the map, though. I find BC to be the most shocking, I guess, Firing Jody Wilson-Raybould for being too honest and ethical wasn't appreciated by that province. It's pretty much liberal-free. Really just Ottawa, Montreal, and Halifax are going liberal. And and looks like maybe about 10 or 15 seats total in the greater Toronto area. Some liberals in Winnipeg. But looks like pretty much a wipeout west of Hamilton. That's sort of amazing. Now, that's just a poll. It's just a moment in time. But... All the polls we see are on the same trend, right? Here's here's another slide from a recent Nanos poll. Uh, It measures uh, issues, inflation, cost of housing, jobs. Those are the top three issues they test. But really, aren't those all versions of saying the same thing? How's your job going? Can you afford things? How's inflation? How's your cost? So that's the same bundle, don't you think? So the blue lines there are what people said last month. Green is what people say this month. So you can see all the cost of living issues have really grown in just one month. But look at the environment, though. Now, I'm not against the environment, clean water, clean air, clean soil. Everyone wants that. But I think these days all Trudeau talks about is global warming and carbon taxes. And on that, nobody cares. 
That line is plunging, isn't it? Global warming, talking about stuff that's imaginary. I know what clean drinking water is, dirty air. If we didn't have those, everyone would be worried. But puffs of CO2 in the air, no one can afford that luxury concern anymore. Certainly not when they're being reminded that Trudeau thinks he can solve that problem with a higher carbon tax on you as if that will dent the world's carbon dioxide emissions, half of which come from China. I note that terrorism concerns have doubled from 1% to 2%, still very small but growing. Uh, and, and remember, much of this uh, poll was taken before the terrorism in Israel. I guess having street marches of masked men calling for Hamas-style intifadas here, well, that can make some people nervous. So that poll gave me some hope. But remember, an election could be up to two years away if Trudeau really wanted to stretch it. And you know how the media will work hard on getting every NDP voter to strategically vote for the liberals. ABC, they'll say. Anybody but the conservatives, anybody but Polyev, they'll say. And we haven't even begun to see how explosively biased the CBC state broadcaster will be. I mean, they're awful to begin with, but they know that Polyev will defund them. They know this could be their last election if they don't stop him. So that Nanos poll gladdened my heart a bit. I look forward to more polls that touch on immigration, by the way, from both a housing cost point of view and a violent extremist point of view. I mean, how does this make you feel? A million unvetted migrants a year? Maybe we ought to hit pause on that. I think, I think people are worried. They're just not asked that question by pollsters. Hey, before I leave the subject, let me show you a slide from another Canadian pollster, David Coletto of Abacus, another pro-liberal firm. But look at this chart here. Pretty much the most people ever saying they disapprove of Trudeau, more than 50%, and only 27%, almost exactly half as many saying they approve of Trudeau. But look at where the lines really start to split apart. They were pretty much equal since the, you know, during the last election in the fall of 2021, but then the trucker convoy started and Trudeau brought in martial law, deployed riot police and seized bank accounts. And February 2022, that's when Trudeau's numbers really started to fall. I think the truckers forced some issues there. They deserve some credit. Here's the next poll I want to talk to you about, though. It's an American poll. This is by a pollster called Harvard Harris. It's a fairly reputable pollster. You've probably heard of it. I'm not going to show all of it to you, but I, I really enjoyed going through it. Those Americans have some high-powered pollsters that we just don't have up here. Um, by the way, uh, and this is not what I want to focus on. I just couldn't help mention you. Trump is the most popular choice for president in this poll, at least the highest approval with RFK Jr. in second place for approval, Biden's in third, Kamala Harris, and then Elon Musk. <laughs> this is for approval. Elon Musk is loved by Americans. Isn't that funny? Because the media party hates him. He's too freedom-oriented. Page 16 of this poll, and this is not even what I want to show you. It's just I can't help but telling you inflation is the number one issue. And look at that. Immigration is the number two issue. Most Canadian pollsters will not even ask about immigration. They're too afraid of what people would say. Terrorism and the current Israel-Hamas war are growing as issues, too. Look at page 19 of this poll. Most Americans think Joe Biden is too old and is losing his mind. I think that's unfortunately a factual truth, and many Democrats seem to, to know it. Page 29. By the way, this poll suggests that it's a three-way race with Biden and Trump and RFK Jr. running as an independent. And in that three-way race, Trump wins handily. I'm just saying, that's what the poll says. Harvard poll, it's not exactly Republicans. What I really wanted to show you, though, was page 39. 
talks about the war. 70% of Americans say they're following the war closely. I believe that. And 86% say, obviously, it was a terrorist attack, no matter what the media says, no matter the fact they don't say the word terrorist. Now, look at page 42 of the poll. Which side are you on? 84% of Americans say they're on Israel's side. 16% say they're on Hamas's side. That's too many who are for Hamas, but I, I still like, I mean, how many issues do you have 84% of any country agreeing on? So that feels somewhat comforting to me. But look at the age breakdown. If you're talking about seniors, people over 65, 95% are for Israel. Still low 90s for the over 55s. But look at the young people. Look at people in college, people on Instagram and TikTok. It's 52% to 49% for Israel. Essentially a statistical tie. How? How did that happen? How did young people side with barbaric murderers, rapists, torturers. How? How did that happen in America? It can't just be ascribed to unassimilated immigrants, by the way. If you're at 48%, you're talking to a lot of natural-born Americans, old-stock Americans, if you want to use that phrase. It's not just new income, new immigrants. i tell you what it is. It's our institutions, our schools, our universities, our social media. And that's what we'll talk about when we come back after this short break with a woman who lived through this kind of institutional indoctrination in communist China. Stay with us. before the October 7th terrorist attacks in Israel, I was in one of my favorite cities, Calgary, because Dr. James Lindsay was giving a speech, a rather professorial speech, if I might say, about the roots of woke, of what Mar Marxist uh, critical theory, what cultural Marxism was all about. And I was riveted, and he spoke for about 90 minutes, and there were a thousand people in the room. I thought, boy, he's being a little bit professorial here, a little bit high intellectual, but this populist crowd was hanging on his every word because they had never heard an explanation of where did woke come from? What is its purpose? And how can you find all these supposedly contradictory groups, but d all dedicated to the revolution? But that was the point, and my eyes were so opened by that. And in that same vein, I encountered this tweet three days ago by a survivor of Mao's cultural revolution, someone who was born in the... Soviet-style communism of that country. Well, I don't have to say Soviet-style. Mao had his own even worse version of communism. Here's the tweet itself. It shows Black Lives Matter flags and queers against Israel apartheid flags and Hamas flags. And Xi Van Fleet wrote, the same people, the same cause, the same ideology, and the same goal." And I would not have understood that were it not for the lecture that Dr. James Lindsay gave a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago now in Calgary. And so what a pleasure to have back the author of that simple but profound tweet, Shi Van Fleet, the author of the forthcoming book, Mao's America, A Survivor's Warning 
I can hardly wait to get my hands on that book. But today we're going to talk about that very interesting tweet. She Van Fleet, great to see you again. Thank you for taking the time out of your schedule. Congratulations on the book, and we'll have a proper sit-down where we go through the book. I want to read it first, so I have some smart yeah. questions to ask about it. Yeah, but thank you. You have given us a great education on the ways of the Maoist revolution and how it is being replicated by cultural Marxism in North America. Can you explain for our viewers who maybe missed your last appearance on the show, explain how you would say that Black Lives Matter, uh, the pride, uh, you know, queers for Palestine and the pro-Hamas movement, how are those the same people with the same goal? Explain that for people who might not know how that could possibly be true. Yes, it, some of them you look kind of contradictory, but it is not. It's very consistent because it runs on the same, I call it operating system, and it's called uh, oppressors versus oppressed. That's what I was indoctrinated, and that's how Mao carried out his revolution. And it's always, people are always divided into two. And one is the villain and the oppressor, and the other is the oppressed, the victim. And everything you look, you look through that lens, and then you put your value based on that lens. That means black and white thinking. That means oppressors, bad, and oppressed, good. That anything that oppressed uh, due to the oppressor is justified anything. Okay, that is exactly how the revolution was carried out in China during the land reform in the 19, uh, early 1950s, 1951 to 1953. Mao took over China after that and then uh, mobilized the peasants to go against the landlord, the property class because they were the bad guys, they were the oppressors. They confiscated their land, and then they labeled them the oppressor, and then struggle and had struggle session against them, and they beat, tortured, and killed two million of those landlords. Their crime, wealth, or just their own a little bit more than their neighbor. And during the Cultural Revolution, they carry out the same principle oppressor versus oppressed. Who are the oppressors? Now, they were the teachers and the, and the principals because Mao called them the reactionary bourgeois intellectual authority. So overnight, they become the enemy and that justify for the red gods to go after their teachers hmm. and their principals. The first killing took place in the Cultural Revolution in 1966 was done by a group of young girls. They young girls, eh? Young girls from 12 to 16, from a very, very uh, prestigious high school in Beijing. They killed their principal because their principal is labeled as the oppressor or the enemy. And uh, actually there's no consequence. Some hmm. of the killers, because they're from the elite uh, school, and they're from the elite family. Some of them immigrate to America and are, and are enjoying the American dream. Hmm. And their principle, no justice. 
And that's exactly what I see happening in America, especially today on our streets and on campuses. Through the same lens, they had the same way of thinking, black and white. Oppressors, oppressors bad, oppressed, good. Anything is justified. That include killing, raping, and kidnapping, because that's done to the oppressed, uh, to uh, the by the press to the oppressor. Same ideology, same people. Why could they do that? Because they're from the same indoctrination mills, and uh, the Red Guards they were indoctrinated by the CCP, and here they were indoctrinated by the Marxist-run universities and the secondary schools. That's wow. how they think the same. You know, it was amazing to hear Dr. James Lindsay's speech, and he compared the Red Guard, which was young people, as you point out, young people. and he, called, he compared it to the Green Guard, which is what he called environmental extremists, including Greta yes. Thunberg, and he, called, he also talked about the Rainbow Guard, which would be the critical gender theory, yeah. queer theory. And that's how it can make sense, because we see these queers yes. for Palestine. And I keep yeah. thinking, in Hamas-controlled Gaza, if you're gay, there are no transgender people who go out and about in drag. They would be thrown off the top of apartment exactly. buildings. That's how yeah. they're treated. So I keep thinking, how on earth could you be an out-of-the-closet, flamboyant gay man or woman supporting a regime that believes that you should be murdered for your homosexuality, and the only possible answer is both regard themselves as oppressed people who would do anything to get the oppressor. And, and so they're all for revolution. You know, homosexuality or environmentalism or Hamas or Black Lives Matter, those are just different variations on the theme, the theme exactly. being revolution. Is that, I mean, that once yeah. I heard can that, I click. Explain? Can yeah. I explain a little bit uh, more? So why you think that it, it makes sense that, uh, you know, the same people that decry a misgendering, a simple misgendering, some, sometimes it's honest misgendering, mm -hmm. it, they consider that crime. They consider that actual violence. Hmm. And then in front of this real atrocity, they justify. Hmm. If you put that lens and then look at things, that make perfect sense. And when I say the same goal, what's this? What's the goal? The out, who is the ultimate oppressor? That's the United States of America. And hmm. that's their after. Hmm. That's their real goal. They want to dismantle this country and, and, and dismantle capitalism, the free market. That's their goal. So everything else put together, simple, communism. And hmm. that's something I experienced. And that's exactly what's going on here with a little bit different variation, hmm. but the same is the same. And I guess that's why there's such a push from the left, including from the media, to doubt and, and raise skepticism about the torture of these Israeli victims um, to say, oh, it didn't happen. It's, it's fake news. I, we interviewed a young woman in Mississauga who said, it's completely not true. None of Hamas would never do any of those things. But if they did, it was totally justified. Like it was an amazing um, psychological trick she did. But I guess the reason they have to say that is because if they admit that their side did the raping, murdering, torturing, kidnapping, then 
you know, maybe the Israelis and the Jews were the oppressed and not the oppressors. So they have to force things back. Well, they were the oppressors, and that's why it was justified against them, because you're allowed to murder an oppressor, even if that oppressor is like a two-year-old baby. It's shocking yeah. to see what this looks like in real life, but I guess that's how it was in communist China. There were atrocities. Absolutely. Tell, tell Absolutely. us about that. I mean, you, you already said 14, 15, 16-year-old girls murdered their school principal. Was, was violence the way... Uh, uh, I mean, how many people were killed in these sort of oppressor versus oppressed uh, or oppressed versus oppressor uh, Marxist battles? Millions, millions. And I can tell you one story, maybe relate more to what happened in uh, in uh, Israel. Okay. okay. During the Cultural Revolution in October of 1966, that's the beginning of the uh, Red Guards movement. They killed um, 1,700 people in Beijing, but that's not enough. They went on to the uh, neighboring county and they went to uh, 48 villages and killed those former oppressors, meaning those people that used to own land or their parents used to own land. They killed hundreds of them. Hmm. They tortured them hmm. and they split little baby into halves. Oh my God. And... Uh, for what? For what? For one thing, the ideology tells them those were enemies, anything down to them is justified. So I have to tell Americans, the first step to commit violence like the, those Red Guards did is to accept, justify, and celebrate violence. That's what we see on American campuses, that's what we see on the streets. And that is not a warning. That is violence coming in the near future if we don't stop it. Wow. Now, let me ask you a question. Again, some of my questions are emanating from that speech I heard Dr. Lindsay give. Um, let's say that the violent revolution is successful, mm -hmm. as, it, as it has been in, in various countries. What happens to these contradictions? Like, I mean, God forbid, and I certainly hope that we win this battle, but let's say there were queers for Palestine and there was Hamas, and let's say they succeeded. Uh, would there be a liquidation? Would there be, a, would there be an internal uh, settling of scores? Like what happened in Mao's China once certain things were accomplished, once the Red Guard killed the landowners, yes. killed the professors, killed the four olds, killed intellectuals, yeah. killed the old school. What was done with the killers? Like you've got this group I of, know. What happened then? That's something those uh, pro uh, progressive activists should know. They will be the next. That's what happened to the Red Guards. After they did what Mao wanted them to do, that means got rid of all those in power um, and uh, took power back for Mao. And it did all this damage and it destroyed all those four olds. What happened to them? They were exiled, exiled to the countryside to work in the fields. Some of them were sent to virgin land to cultivate those land. And many, many of them suffered so much afterwards in today, uh, China, many mental hospitals have a special division for just those young 
uh, people that were sent to the countryside and then, then they never recovered. And wow. those, those people were called the lost generation. And that's what happened to the uh, um, most useful idiots. And this same thing, absolutely no doubt, the same thing will happen to the BMMs and TIFA, those uh, trans activists, the same thing. They just need you now to make chaos, to help them to get power. After your useful is over, you will be sent to gulags or worse. Now, you say that the Cultural Revolution started in 1966. Of course, Mao uh, took over, I, I guess, 17 years earlier, if my, if my history of dates is correct. So he had basically one generation to teach these young people to hate. And I look at the Hitler youth. Hitler didn't have quite as much time, but he did train young people to hate. Um, and, and that was a peaceful, liberal Christian country, but he had his way with them. In Gaza, they have had control, the Hamas has had control there for uh, more than 15 years. And, and we've seen videos of young people as young as kindergarten being taught not just to hate Jews, but to deal with Jews violently. What scares me is that you have a whole, that, that all of Gaza has been put through this brainwashing the same way the Red Guard were, the same way the Hitler Youth were, and that even if Israel is able to smash the Hamas terrorist group and kill its leaders and kill its terrorists, what scares me is you've got millions, literally millions of Gazans who have been indoctrinated, propagandized, taught to hate, even trained to kill. How do you denazify them? How do you, like, what did, did China eventually try and pull the plug? Did Mao, you say he, when he thought the Red Guard did their, outlived their usefulness, how do you turn around a madness like that? How do you end the craziness? Well, as you said, the hate came from um, indoctrination. Hate was taught in China, and hate is being taught in Gaza and here in America. Right. So the hate is the active ingredient for a totalitarian regime. They have to have the, uh, the hate in order to divide people, in order to control them. And in Hitler's Germany, it was easier. It was uh, hating someone who have a different religion or who have a, a, a belong to a different race. In China, it was a little difficult because we're all Chinese. Most of 95% of us were Han Chinese, have the same language, same, you know, same people. And it took them 17 years, exactly. From 1949 to 1966, 17 years, totally, totally brainwashed. I have to tell you a little story so you can have better understanding. So in 19... 1957, Mao launched an anti-rightist campaign to weed out those people have, that have incorrect thoughts. By 1966, there's no rightist. There's no nobody or the young people, very few of them have incorrect thought. They all had the correct thought that they were taught. So that is the power of indoctrination. After a few generations, yes, it's all brainwashed, absolutely believing nothing, but they were told. And that is exactly going on in our school. 
It's absolutely terrifying. I mean, it's one thing for me to talk about Gaza and Hamas, but, and yes, a lot of the people marching in the streets of Britain and Canada are Muslim immigrants to our countries, but it you absolutely have to notice the uh, native-born or the, the born in Canada, born in America, born in Europe, white, post-Christian Marxists who grew up in London, New York, Toronto, Calgary, and were corrupted by our woke institutions, not by a terrorist group called Hamas, not yeah. by an Islamic fascist, but by our institutions, by our, our schools. Institutions. That's yes. that's just as scary, and, and we have responsibility for that. We can't blame the white anti-Semitism on Islam. Something happened in North America to foster yeah. that indoctrination, and, and that cannot be blamed on radical Islam. That's something else. It's here. It's absolutely, it is, it came from uh, the uh, our institutions. It came from the uh, universities and our secondary schools. So that's what I always say. Those were the, the result of indoctrination. And uh, I would think that what's happening on the street is more concerning about how our young people are thinking more so than the conflict over there in the Middle East. Right. We should be very, very alarmed that we have the young generation who do not know right from wrong and who believe in one thing, and that is the ideology they were taught, and that's absolutely black and white thinking. Hmm. You're either wrong or either right, uh, or, or right. You're either good or bad, and that is uh, what we see in America today. And as you point out, the violence in Mao's Red Guard, the violence in Hamas, and even the violence in the Black Lives Matter movement, which rioted and committed arson across America, that is the response to people who have wrong thoughts. Well, what a education to catch up with you. We've been talking with Shee Van Fleet. She's the author of Mao's America, A Survivor's Warning. Now, is that book available yet? I haven't read it yet. Is it yeah. for sale yet? It is for pre-order. It will come out October 31st. Wow. And I really hope that your audience will get the book. In the book, I really describe what happened in China and compare everything that is going on today. When you see that comparison, when you see that parallel, you realize what's going on in America today is a full-blowing Marxist revolution, which burned China to the ground. And if we don't stop it, it will burn America to the ground. And Canada, too. Well, that's one week from now. When that book is available, I'm going to read it. And I want to read it so my questions to you are a little bit more precise and a little bit on point. But I would love to have you back. And it's sort of uh, telling that the book is coming out on Halloween. Halloween is about pretend horrors like ghosts and Frankenstein. Oh, that's but what you're describing is actually... Uh, I mean, just in sheer absolute numbers, Mao is responsible for more deaths than even Hitler or Stalin. And put together. Yeah. So I look more forward to reading together. that book as a warning. It's called Mao's America, a Survivor's Warning. So we'll have you back uh, when that book is out and we'll have a, a good hearty discussion going through it chapter by chapter. And uh, until then, keep up uh, the fight. Keep talking about freedom and keep trying to warn us. Keep trying to wake us up, she. Thank you so much. All right. What a pleasure. She Van Fleet, the author of the forthcoming book, Mouse America. We will read it and we will interview her again.
Yes, Ezra, so on the front line here at the Israel-Gaza border, so the last 24 hours has been interesting. When we left off yesterday, there was talk of a, a hostage release of 50 hostages, which didn't um, eventuate because the IDF, the Israeli government, refusing to give into the demand of Hamas to transfer fuel to the terrorist organisation. So in response, Hamas did not release the 50 the 50 dual citizen hostages that they were planning uh, to hand over. Instead, they released two hostages to um, an elderly woman, an 85-year-old today speaking for the first time to the media. Within her, it was actually quite telling what she was um, what she was saying in, in her uh, full, when you listen to her full press conference and questions and answers, but um, one thing I note is haters of Israel certainly cutting certain bits of what she was saying, trying to prove that somehow, there we go, that's the first bit of noise that we're seeing um, in the last few hours here. But after, um, what we did see is Israel haters using her press conference, cutting small segments, trying to act like she was saying that Hamas was treating them well, but yeah, obviously cutting out the context, including the context that they still have her husband um, in there. So uh, obviously in the back of her mind trying to protect him. On top of that, we saw overnight the IDF eliminating the the Hamas leader responsible for the Barry Kibbutz massacre. And in the last few hours, uh, eliminating uh, about, uh, they're reporting about up to 10 um, Hamas terrorists trying to infiltrate the, Zikim, the Zik, Kibbutz Zikim through the water. So there's a lot going on at the moment. However, it has been pretty quiet in the last few hours, besides for that um, latest explosion you just heard with us. Otherwise, we the team did go down and, and, and followed up a few stories close to the border in Ashkelon, speaking to going, visiting a man's house that had been uh, uh, hit directly via one of the rockets from Hamas, just kind of showing the impact and, and the daily life the last 20 years for Israelis along this border. Remember, these rockets is not a new thing. They have, You can see in the video he has, they, they, they have to build apartments with um, the, the bunker inside. That's part of regulation when you build here, uh, especially in Ashkelon. So they've been quite used to that. But he did say on that specific day, on the day of the attack, October 7, uh, the barrage was heavier than usual, much heavier than usual. And he got tired of going into the bunker. He was actually about to walk out and make a coffee when his wife banned him. He was more scared, he says, of his wife than he, he was of the threat of rockets. But lucky he listened to her because um, that was a direct hit. And you can see the footage of the, the, the horrific impact that could have. He's thankful and he's grateful and he says, you know what, he he may, may have lost his apartment and all his stuff and his belongings that means a lot to him, but he has his, uh, uh, you know, he's grateful that he's not like many of the other victims of that horrific day. Of the war and the siren after siren after siren. And on the 10th, you know, my wife actually saved me alive because they were hitting, they were launching their rockets indiscriminately. I mean, in order to hit and to kill Jews as many as possible. So, and what 10th siren, I decided, okay, I should go out from the shelter inside the apartment, make coffee. So I did it, 
and there was once again a siren, and my wife uh, called me back. I didn't want to irritate her, I'm just married, you know. It's very dangerous, I mean, even more dangerous than the rockets. So I came back, closed the door, and then I saw the flash of orange light, I mean, the blast, heat, explosion. I mean, the building was like, uh, you know, I don't know how to shake it precisely. I opened the door, and uh, if, you, if you saw Stranger Things, like upside down, the same, the same area. I mean, everything is dust, like dust in the air, dust is everything. I mean, the, the burn thing, this, uh, uh, the smell of the burn stuff, I mean, uh, not a pleasant thing. Um, in addition to that, we also caught, we went to see the uh, hospital in um, Beersheva, which is a large hospital, the largest southern hospital, where a lot of the victims. Um, both civilians and soldiers were transferred to after the attack. We spoke to the director of the uh, um, uh, ICU, um, who basically, again, just reconfirmed some of the horrific uh, stories we've heard, and from more from the medical perspective, and somebody that was leading the hospital through all of that, and how unprepared they were at the time for it. You know, he was telling us they had generally one operating uh, theatre. Uh, running, uh, but it was a weekend and it was a Jewish holiday and it was Shabbat um, and so they really didn't have anything going but they managed to pull up 13 theatres in a very short amount of time, pointing out that, uh, you know, the idea that this is an apartheid state is laughable because not only were many of the victims Arabs but also many of the team uh, the, uh, the staff and the doctors and the nurses were Arabs themselves uh, as well Finally, when we left the hospital, we also managed to catch up with some ambulance, uh, the, the paramedics that were first responders on the day. These are not volunteers like we saw yesterday as we, um, as we caught up with a uh, makeshift uh, paramedic um, command centre, which was for 7,000 volunteers. This one was actually the uh, state paramedics, the ones that the Magin David Adom, that is, you know, the, the paid professional paramedics, and they were the first responders on that day. Uh, and they relayed, again, some of the atrocities that happened, you know, just reminding us, reminding the world why Israel is going in uh, to defend its citizens. You know, you got the hostages in there still, the 210 plus hostages, but, you, you know, that horrific day where you saw 1,400 civilians butchered, maimed, kidnapped, raped, some of the, you know, some of the scariest uh, scenes you've ever seen in Israel's history. United Hatzalah has 7,000 volunteers. Um, there are people who work for Hatzalah, but those are more the logistics side. In terms of being an EMT and a paramedic in Hatzalah, it's all volunteer. So we all have our jobs, and then in the middle of the day, if there's a call arises, you go and respond to the call, you take time off of work, and you do what's needed. So. Like it's quite evident just looking around that many of the people here that are volunteering are what, uh, you know, are, are considered ultra-Orthodox Jews. You generally don't see many of them in the, in, in the army. It's a broad spectrum. It's a, spectrum. It's a very broad spectrum. Like right now I think you're seeing more of a concentration of the Orthodox Jews, of the ultra-Orthodox Jews, because a lot, of, a lot of volunteers have been drafted and they're all over the country. There were, if you turn around and see those pallets over there, those are the empty leftover pallets, this that whole place. Around was filled with pallets of water, of dry goods, food, there was clothing, there were, yeah, all of those things. Um, 
And there were volunteers from the nearby communities that were coming, um, along with our own logistics people, under the direction of our logistics people, to pack things up for families that were displaced from Stay Road and from other communities here. They were taken to hotels without anything, um, or to other families without any of their own belongings. And Ikhrat Salah um, took care of uh, creating care packages for those families and for soldiers who also were brought so quickly to their bases. They didn't have time to prepare, you know, um, and the bases didn't have time to prepare. So they were bringing things also for the soldiers. But until tomorrow, we'll be here live at thetruthaboutthewar.com. Ezra, so all the viewers that are interested in seeing it unfold will be here uh, to catch it. Well, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night and keep fighting for freedom. Mm -hmm.